Our scripture reading today is from Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 to 42. Hear God's word. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. My name is Gabe Coyle, and I am the campus pastor here at Christ Communities downtown campus. And whether you realize it or not, most of your life is motivated by one emotion. Can you guess what it is? Fear. Fear. Fear is what's behind and so informs how you go about your daily work. Fear informs where you choose to live. Fear informs how you engage in your relationships with family and friends. Fear even and especially informs where you put your money. And this last one isn't lost on advertisers. I think we've all heard that sex sells, and it most surely does. <laughs> but the truth that we often miss is that fear sells far more. It actually taps deep into our desire for self-preservation, which always, almost always, supersedes our desire for self-fulfillment. I mean, when you are terrified, there's absolutely no limit to what you will pay to find relief. It's the catalyst that gets you off the couch. It's the underlying motive, whether you realize it or not, behind every click of the mouse. And the most powerful ads mess with us here in our fears. Take this one commercial, for example. Now, listen, okay? 
You know, I've always been a fan of Subarus. And listen, if you can watch that and not feel anything, you're probably a robot. Um, <clears throat> and even though I've always liked Subarus, whenever I see that commercial, there's something deep inside of me that tells me I need one. <laughs> oh, you'll save my family from dying a horrible death in an accident. Fine. Here's all my money, right? And that's the power of fear. The power of fear. It's, it's really everywhere. Fear is what's behind why you don't step up or speak up at work. Fear is what's behind why you're not honest with your spouse or your parents. Fear is what is behind the reason you won't take chance on love again. And even as we were talking last week about what it means to follow Jesus all the way into opposition, that conversation probably made you squirm, at least a smidge. I know it made me squirm. And what Jesus is doing this morning is he's telling us, he's telling each and every one of us that we don't have to be dominated by our fears, that we actually have made available to us the viable option to fear not, that we can stare death in the face and say, I'm not afraid. Now, to be clear, what Jesus isn't saying is that those worst fears, some of those worst fears will not happen to us. What he's not saying is that your life won't get mangled. What he isn't saying is that you won't get hurt. Jesus isn't a prom promising a life that's void of all fear. You've probably heard the phrase, the only thing to fear is fear itself, right? Jesus didn't say that, nor did any of his apostles. Instead, what we hear from Jesus this morning is that you have to fight fear with fear. You have to fight fear with fear. That's the only way forward. And this morning, we're going to continue walking through Matthew's account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Last week, we began to see how Jesus always sends those he calls, always. And last week, we saw how the Christian life is a mission that requires thoughtful resolve. The reason we need this resolve is because there are two main obstacles that always confront us on this all-encompassing mission that Jesus calls us to. We saw the first one last week when we talked about how to navigate persecution from those who oppose the gospel. And today we look at the second, I think the even more obtrusive obstacle, and that's our own fear. And what Jesus tells us this morning is you have to fight fear with fear. Because when you do that, when you really fight fear with fear, you see how much God values you. You ironically begin to see what is most valuable, and it's only here you have confidence that the best really is yet to come. You know, we need to hear this today. I, I know I need to hear this. So if you haven't already, would you please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. If you're using one of our community Bibles, it's found on page number 815. And while you're turning there, we saw just earlier that Jesus was detailing out for the 12 apostles, these paradigmatic disciples, that they are going to be hated, that they are going to be publicly ridiculed and brutally abused, all because of their association with Jesus. And without even missing a beat, Jesus says in chapter 10, verse 26, so have no fear of them. So have no fear of them. And Jesus, being brilliant, he knows what any logical person is asking next. The question that we all are assuming at this moment is why? Why shouldn't we have fear of those who flay our skin, who imprison us and openly ridicule us? 
Look at Jesus' response here in verse 26. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim it on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body and hell. What Jesus is saying is that with these little disciples, this small group here that seem hidden from the world over, one day the gospel that they've been entrusted to will very much transform the landscape of thought this world over. But until that day, don't fear those who can just destroy your body. Instead, fear him. Fear God who can destroy both your body and your soul in hell. You have to fight fear with fear. Now, that begs a couple questions, okay? First, if God is a God of love, why do we have to fear him? And then secondly, that, that leads to the next question. How does this fear of God actually help us to overcome every other fear we have in life, right? And, and I think both of these questions naturally arise because we have no idea what the biblical authors and Jesus himself means when he talks about the fear of the Lord. This is a constant theme throughout the pages of Scripture. We see it in the book of Genesis, the very beginning, and it strings all the way through even to the book of Revelation, and the person who fears the Lord is one who is pleasing to God. So we better understand what this means. Pastor Tim Keller and his wife, Kathy, they've worked collaboratively in writing different things. And, and I like the way they help explain the fear of the Lord. It's up on the screen. Obviously, to be in the fear of the Lord is not to be scared of the Lord. Even though the Hebrew word has overtones of respect and awe, fear in the Bible means to be overwhelmed, to be controlled by something. To fear the Lord is to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and His love. It means that because of His bright holiness and magnificent love, you find Him fearfully beautiful. That's why the more we experience God's grace and forgiveness, the more we experience a trembling awe and wonder before the greatness of all that he is and has done for us. In other words, to fear the Lord is to be so overwhelmed with the beauty of who God is that he becomes the controlling character of your life. To stand in this trembling awe that the Apostle Paul tells the church in Philippi, so this is New Testament, this is an Old Testament, New Testament, to stand in a trembling awe of who God is such that it compels us to absolute surrender such that when you finally stand in this overwhelming beauty of who God is, every other fear that is vying for our devotion bows out before him. Because when you face fear and your fight or flight tendencies come, who is to guide the very steps in which we live? None other than the awful God himself. You have to fight fear with fear. But we have to understand what scripture talks about when it talks about fear here. Now, latent within this charge to fight fear with fear is a very real warning from Jesus. Because Jesus says here, you are to fear God, fear him who can destroy both your body and soul in hell. 
Now, the word for hell here is the Greek word Gehenna. It wasn't just an idea. It wasn't just a state of being. This was a literal place in first century Israel. Right outside the gates of Jerusalem, you found the garbage dump called Gehenna, where waste burned day and night. This was meant to be an image that was visceral and sensory. This isn't something that's just an abstract concept. This was a part of the geography of the people of God. And what Jesus is saying is maybe you haven't rejected God outright, but you're living your whole life in ignorance to him. And your whole life has been captured with the awe of another. And it's setting you on a trajectory of self-destruction until finally you waste your life away and become nothing more than a smoldering fire unto yourself for all eternity. What a terrifying image. That's the picture Jesus paints. And yet, even here, what's so amazing is that something radical happens when you begin to fight fear with fear here. When you begin to follow Jesus, you actually see the warnings that Jesus gives through new eyes, such that even in the garbage dump of hell, you see how much God values you. You see how much God values you. How? Good question. <laughs> because this is exactly the hell that Jesus came to rescue us from. This is exactly the hell that we so often choose, that we so often make for ourselves here now and will be extenuated into eternity, that God became flesh, lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we deserved to die so that he might invite us into his kingdom rather than being on the outskirts and the garbage dump of hell. You see, even when you begin to fight fear with fear, you see these warnings now through the lens of his radical love for us. Don't go there. Don't make your life that. And simultaneously, what we come to discover is that this has been the source of, of encouraging many Christians in their patience and in forgiveness when great atrocities, atrocities have taken place. You see, because in this moment, what we find in the concept of hell that Jesus lays out here is that God will not always overlook the suffering of his children. Victims will not always be discarded. Pain will not always seem forgotten. Oppressors will eventually receive their just desserts. And when we begin to fight fear with fear, we see there are only two paths through which God will deal with injustice in the world, and the first of which is in the cross of Jesus Christ, such that if you surrender to Jesus and you allow him to be your substitute, to take your, your sin upon himself, then God is both just and punishing evil and also the justifier. And Jesus is sufficient sacrifice and you can rest and be shielded in Christ or in bitterness and in persistent rebellion, choose to live outside the kingdom and so experience eternal judgment. I mean, this is why Christians can genuinely say what Paul reminds us of, which is echoed throughout the Old Testament, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And no matter how atrocious the actions that have come against believers, we do not respond in violent retaliation 
Do we fight for justice here and now for the least of these? Of course. But we do so with, with the understanding of God's perfect wisdom to mete out his justice and his perfect ways that evil will not forever torment this world. For there is a day when God's perfect will, as it's done in heaven, will come to earth and evil will be banished. But it's even here, if you fight fear with fear, and you live your life in awe of him, that's exactly where you don't have anyone else to fear. Yeah, they can destroy the, your body, and there's a chance they may. Following Jesus isn't a walk in a park, but the only one who can destroy your soul is relentlessly for you. That's what we come to discover. And Jesus, he, he pushes this point home when we get down to verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. Do you see how much God values you? If you go back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, we see that when Jesus is talking about anxiety, he points to the birds of the air and points specifically to how God provides for them. But when he talks to his followers here about the opposition that is to come and the persecutions to come, he talks about how sparrows and how God is intimately involved in the countless sparrows this world over such that when even they die, when they fall from the sky, you notice Jesus' intentional language of death here, they're not overlooked. They're not forgotten. And how often hairs fall from our heads on a daily basis. They are lost. They dis they're discarded. And yet Jesus and God the Father always knows the exact number of hairs that are on your head. And we shouldn't skim past this point. The glorious God who created the world and leaves us awestruck is enraptured with his children. You're not an afterthought. You're not forgotten. You're not overlooked. You're God's child. And he's a good, good father. That's who he is. And listen, God, not the devil, is involved in the details of your life, and he wouldn't have it any other way. When you begin to fight fear with fear, you see how much God values you. That the very creator of the universe calls you mine. And if that's true, let me ask you the question, what do you fear about following Jesus? That's the question Jesus is inviting the disciples to ponder. What is vying for your devotion? What has captivated your awe? What is trying to control you? Because each and every one of us are responsible for our response. Each and every one of us has a decision to make. And Jesus highlights the crux of that decision here in verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. A life in allegiance to Jesus is inherently a public faith. It is not merely restrained to the private devotional lives of an early morning or a late evening, but should encompass every facet of our lives. What do you fear about publicly following Jesus? 
I think one example, one space of reflection that we could engage this morning is the area of our conversations, whether they be in our neighborhoods, whether they be at work, whether they be with family. And I want you to ask, do you speak openly about your faith? Not arrogantly, not defensively, but openly. When, when conversations spark up, do you, do you try to pit and weave and move to try to avoid conversation of faith and church and God's work in your life? Because listen, we, we don't have to flaunt our faith, but we shouldn't blush either because of our association with Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you, as you think about your conversations you have with coworkers, with family members, with neighborhood or neighbors, do you get more often than not embarrassed? You begin to quiet down around the talk of Jesus. Because if that is you, I would encourage you to take a moment of confession and repentance and ask for forgiveness. Because it does not honor the one who values you. And instead now look for opportunities where you can speak up and speak out. And so communicate. One of the ways that you can do this is when people ask you what you've got going on on the weekend. Don't conveniently leave out your engagement with your church family. When people ask what's going on in your life, just because someone else may not have the same belief structure or worldview as you doesn't mean you can't share what God is doing in your heart, in your life. I think so often we can think, well, that's going to make other people feel uncomfortable. And yet we become disingenuous and unauthentic by leaving out what is to be the core component of our lives and our conversations with others and communicating what God is doing and transforming your heart and your life. Don't let the fear of others keep you from sharing the gospel with others. And what should we expect when we start doing that, when our conversations are shaped with a fearlessness of others? One thing I've always appreciated about Jesus when you really read him and you, and you get to know him um, is he doesn't beat around the bush. He's very straight and his shoot, I mean, he's just like, hey, look, what's going to happen is things are going to get worse before they get better, okay? When you actually start doing this, um, but what happens when you find yourself in those situations, when you're fighting fear with fear, when you're captivated with the awe and the beauty of God, is that you actually see what is most valuable. Listen to what he says here in verse, beginning in verse 34. Do you not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth? I haven't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or more, mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When you fight fear with fear, you can be sure a battle is coming. And Jesus is the one who's waging the war. This is battle language. He's come to bring a sword, not peace. But wait, I thought Jesus was the prince of peace. I thought he longs to bring us peace. Yes and yes. But when we begin to live our lives in allegiance to Jesus, we will find that we have newfound enemies. Not necessarily that we're the ones making them, but oftentimes they're in the most least likely of places that we could have imagined. 
You know, in the first century, and still in actually a lot of traditional cultures today, the family's everything, right? It's where you find your identity. It's where you find your security. It's where you even understand your vocation, your calling, your job, because you grew up, and you're going to get plugged into the family business. You know, if your dad was a blacksmith, you're going to be a blacksmith. If your mom was a homemaker, you're going to be a homemaker. This is the very culture you grew up in. If you got sick, if you got hurt, or if you became elderly, your family is what cared for you. It was your safety net. You were known in the neighborhood as the son of so-and-so. Oh, you're, you're Gary's son. Oh, you're, you're, you're Sherry's daughter. You're, you're Becca's granddaughter. And, and the religion of the family was the moral fabric that held it all together. And what Jesus is doing in this first century traditional culture is saying, I have to be your ultimate allegiance, that even the very framework of what you thought was life itself must be by the wayside in allegiance to me. Now, to be clear, loyalty to Jesus isn't a call to hate your family. Don't get too excited, okay? You know, earlier, Jesus calls us to love our neighbors, doesn't he? And to love even our enemies, especially when our families are the ones who have put themselves in opposition to the gospel. But the fear of rejection from our family, the fear of not meeting up or measuring up to the expectations of our family does not now any longer become the major and defining framework of our lives. And even though Jesus is talking specifically about family here, he's not just talking about family. Some of you may be in here and thinking, well, hey, my family are a bunch of believers. I've got this set. It's time for me to check out and can't wait for communion. Not quite, okay? Jesus is talking about your everything. He's talking about your everything. It may not be family, but it may be your job. It may be a financial plan. It may be even a cluster of friends. And what Jesus is saying is pick up your cross and follow me. Pick up your cross and follow me. Whoever chases after, this, this language, whoever finds his life, is actually a very purposeful chase. Whoever chases after his life, the very life breath, the very thing that sustains you, if you chase after your life breath, your own life and your own sustenance, it's going to be like chasing after the wind. And you'll lose your life. But if you chase after Jesus and you die in the process and you lose your life, the very giver of life breathes life into you. Everlasting life is the promise. And this is the paradox that Jesus invites us into when we follow him. When you fight fear with fear, you actually lose your life when you find it. Because no matter who you are, there's always something or someone who's vying for your ultimate allegiance. There's always someone or something out there that if Jesus were to say, hey, to follow me, you've got to give that up, it's going to kill you to say yes. It's one of your worst nightmares that you'll wake up in the morning and it's gone. Ask yourself this morning, what are you afraid to give up for Jesus? Because listen, chances are you know exactly what the answer to that is. (laughs) I don't have to give you a bunch of examples, but I will. Because there are a lot of really good things that become ultimate things that slowly subvert Jesus to have a lesser awe than he should in your life. It could be a financial status, and it subverts your obedience. It could be a relationship. It could be your reputation. It could be an indulgence. It could be a grudge. It could be affirmation, acceptance, belonging. 
It could be a preference, a very lifestyle decision. What is it about that that you feel like it warrants your fear of losing it? Why do you feel like it's so necessary to have it that you risk losing all of Jesus? Because Jesus, he doesn't pull any punches here. To follow him is to pick up a cross and die. And if your life looks exactly the way it did before you began following Jesus, you might need to ask yourself some serious questions. When you fight fear with fear, you have to ask yourself, what are you afraid to give up to follow Jesus? And is it worth it? And, and many of you may even be asking the question, I ask myself this question sometimes, is it worth it to take up my cross and follow him then? And that's a very healthy exercise. It's called counting the cost because you don't follow Jesus willy-nilly because it is an all-encompassing affair. And I do want to say, I think it's worth it. I think it's beautiful. I think it's one of the best things. It is the best thing you can do with your life. It's the only thing that will give you life. And it's not only because when you fight fear with fear, you see how much God values you. It's not only because when you fight fear with fear, you actually are able to prioritize what is most valuable, but it's because only when you fight fear with fear, you have confidence the best really is yet to come. You have confidence the best really is yet to come. Yeah, there may be pain today with some of the things that Jesus calls you to. There may even be suffering tomorrow and the day after that, but it will not be forever. It will not be forever. Look with me here at verse 40. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And I don't want you to miss this. Earlier in chapter 10, Jesus says no student is greater than his master. Meaning, if they have ridiculed Jesus and even called him Satan because he's come and he's shaken up the very framework in which they thought they were to relate to God, how much more will they do that to those who follow Jesus? He has such an identification with his followers. But then something even more beautiful shows up here in this passage that when you embrace, when you show hospitality and love to his disciples, those who uniquely associate themselves with Jesus, you receive him. If you love the church, you're loving Jesus. If you hate the church, beware. You know, the word lose here in verse 42, it's the same word lose that we see in verse 39 in our passage. And what that shows us is that no matter what may come, when you take up your cross, you may die. You may lose your life. But Jesus wants you to know that no matter what may come, you cannot lose your eternal reward. He's very intentional in using the same word here. When you begin to fight fear with fear, you have confidence the best really is yet to come. And the best is always Jesus. <laughs> you know, at the center of this reward is a resurrected eternity with the resurrected Christ. 
He's at the center. And if he has captured your awe, if he really is at the center of your fear, what we mean by that, that he's overwhelming you and he's controlling you, you can't imagine heaven any other way. One pastor put it this way. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? If you can say yes, you have no idea what this, this reward is about. The reward is not comfort and isolation to Jesus. It's specifically in relation to Jesus. I mean, listen to Jesus' own words here in our passage again. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me, Jesus, receives him, the Father who sent me. It's all about Jesus. And Jesus knows it's all about Jesus. Will you receive him? Has he captured your awe? Because listen, he's come for you. He's come and he knows what it means to be denied for you. The sword that he brought first pierced his side when he hung on the cross. The father... Father God turned his face away when God the Son became sin who knew no sin for us. And as he hung on the cross, crying out for a cup of cold water, he received nothing but sour wine. And he lost his life that he might secure your eternal reward. And three days later he rose again that he might with all the authority of heaven no matter how mangled our lives may be and may still await us. He can say with even more weight than any Subaru commercial, they lived. They lived. They lived. And we will. So will you fight fear with fear to make his name known? Trusting how much God really does value you chasing after what is most valuable, Christ himself. And all the while having confidence that the best really is yet to come. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We are brothers and sisters in his blood. We have died together. We will rise together and we will live together. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this morning and... Both last week and this week have been sobering messages. I felt the weight of them personally. But we thank you for your word that you do not mince words, but you speak truth to your people for our flourishing, that we might be faithful to who you've called us to be and what you've called us to do. And so, merciful Lord, we pray for the lost, that the gospel would be preached to all the ends of the earth, we ask that having counted the cost, we would endure. Use us to reach those both far and near 
who have not trusted in your son, and so grant us the joy to see the people of this city come into a saving relationship with you. Work through the circumstances and relationships in their lives and ours to draw them to you. Help them to see their sin and their need for a savior. And do a surprising work of revival among the people of our city. And God, we ask, begin with us and the obstacles of opposition and our own fear. May we stand in awe of you such that all other fears bow out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.